1: Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Today, my guest is Professor Anthony Simon-Layden, who will be talking about his new book, Reasoning, A Social Picture, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Tony Layden is professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. We typically think of reasoning as a process that occurs within an individual mind aimed at demonstrating the correctness of some proposition. We reason, that is, in order to figure out what to believe so that we may then decide what to do. Reasoning, in this sense, has as its objective its own termination. We reason in order to reach a conclusion. And once a conclusion is reached, reasoning is no longer needed. In his new book, Professor Layden challenges this common view of reasoning. He argues that the standard picture of reasoning is insufficiently attentive to the respects in which reasoning is something that we do together, and not only for the purpose of reaching conclusions— That is, we reason sometimes in order to structure and shape our relationships with others. On this social picture of reasoning that Leyden develops, reasoning is a matter of exchanging invitations and proposals in an ongoing interaction among persons who share a common but evolving space of reasons. In the course of drawing his social picture of reasoning, Laden addresses a broad range of topics in philosophy of language and mind, ethics, and social and political philosophy. The result is a highly compelling and deeply engaging exercise of philosophy. So we turn to the interview. Hello, Anthony Layden. Hi, Bob. How are you today?
0: I'm very well. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Philosophy.
0: Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Excellent. So today I'm talking with uh, uh, Tony Layden about his new book, Reasoning, a Social Picture, which has just been published. I mean I think published within the last couple of weeks uh, with Oxford University Press. Now this book attempts um, in under 300 pages I should add to displace a standard and I think philosophically familiar view of reasoning – and suggest an alternate picture of reasoning as something that is intrinsically social. So Layden's ambitions in this book are high, and I'm happy to say that uh, the level of achievement is high as well in the book. Uh, This is a thoroughly readable and compelling book, um, and it speaks to uh, core issues in a range of philosophical areas that are not frequently brought together, including philosophy of language, argumentation theory and philosophy of logic, ethics, social philosophy. There's interesting things that uh, Layden says about uh, the nature of the self uh, and so on. Um, So there's obviously in this book uh, a a lot to discuss. Um, But before we get into that, um, Tony, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this project?
0: All right. Um, So I – came to philosophy originally from mathematics uh, as an undergraduate. And that, for a variety of reasons, led me uh, to rational choice theory and game theory. Um, and in learning about that and studying that, I got very interested in and have continued for the last, I guess, 20 years to be interested in questions of what under rational choice theory gets called collective action but I think of as problems of how people do stuff together. So people, we live together, we work together, we talk together, we reason together. Um, and it's always struck me that that doing stuff together is in various ways different from, uh, doing things in a merely coordinated way, doing them uh, side by side, as I like to say. And so I've been interested in how you talk about the doing them together, uh, in a way that captures that difference from merely doing them side by side. And so I've been sort of banging my head against that idea for a long time. Uh, I started thinking about it in terms of politics and how people who are disagreeing with one another in fundamental ways uh, and are perhaps marked by various different identities could nevertheless come together uh, to work out uh, political solutions to their problems and live politically together. Um, And, It always struck me that the the way of talking about this in philosophy, we didn't have the tools, as it were, to fully articulate well this idea of uh, living together or reasoning together or acting together. Um, And so we we kept falling back on old models. And that was one of the things that got me uh, towards working towards this book of trying to find a language and a way of talking about this that would work. The other thing, I guess, to say about myself and my philosophical temperament is uh, I've never been attracted to the style of philosophy that I think uh, often marks our profession. Uh, philosophy is a kind of team sport where you know you know which team you play for because you you have a position, right? You're a luck egalitarian, or you're a utilitarian, or you're a Kantian, and you know what you do as a philosopher is you know push for your side, and you look at the you know who the opponents are, and you read them because they're making arguments that you have to respond to, um, and the business of philosophy is that kind of. Uh, team sport. I tend to read a wide variety of traditions and find interesting things in them, and then I want to know how I can get them all to talk together in my head. So in some sense, uh, my philosophical method is a mirror of this problem, which is, you know, how do I get all these voices in my head, as it were, uh, to talk together and not just to sort of be running their little arguments uh, side by side. So all that tries to come together uh, in this book.
1: Well, excellent. And I, I should say um, uh, that uh, one of the sort of exciting things uh, about the book as I was reading it was the ways in which um, that uh, aspiration to uh, broaden the conversation uh, gets played out because. Uh, One of the neat things about uh, the book is um, that I I learned all kinds of things about Hegel that I never knew uh, and um, saw all kinds of interesting um, connections between um, Kant and Hegel that, uh, you know, Kant and Hegel I had always thought were these deeply opposed characters. (laughs) Um, And so um, it was very, very refreshing in a way um, to see – uh, um, certain themes and even certain texts and figures, including Foucault, for example, brought together with the discussion alongside uh you know Rawls and uh, and other sort of mainstream anglo american uh, sometimes referred to as analytic mm-hmm. philosophers so uh, I, I commend you for that 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 I thought was a very very nice feature of the book um, so to pick up then on the the sort of methodological stuff, I wanted to to sort of begin in talking about the book, uh, about, um, uh, well, wanted to start talking about at least one feature, uh, of the book that, um, caught my eye. Um, and, um, so the listeners to this series of podcasts, uh, I should say, might have noticed, uh, that there've been now three or four, um, interviews with authors of various books that have had in common, um, a kind of heightened sense of attention to Jane Austen uh, and her novels. Um, And um, uh, this is a coincidence, uh, I should say. I have no special interest in Austen, um, you know, apart from the interest anybody else would have. Um, But the way in which Pride and Prejudice figures in your book um, uh, is very uh, interesting to me um, because uh, the recurring – there are lots of examples and lots of different kinds of examples, of course, that you raise. But one of the recurring themes and one of the cur- recurring sort of objects of analysis uh, throughout the book is a series of um, exchanges or conversations or uh, instances in which their words are exchanged between Elizabeth, Mr. Collins and Mr. Darcy. And the book begins there. The book um Ends with uh, uh, conversations between uh, Elizabeth and Mister Collins on one hand, and Elizabeth and Mister Darcy on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and what struck me was that the in the preface to the book, you say that um, you sort of casually picked up Pride and Prejudice, and it was something you were just mining for uh, for examples, and didn't realize when you had picked it up that, um, as I think you say something like this in the preface, that. Uh, Jane Austen was working out a conception of rationality or conception of reasoning that was very close to your own, Um, doesn't uh, occur to me often to look to novelists for conceptions of reasoning. Um, So could you say a little something, I mean, so that the project didn't begin with an interest in this particular novel or an interest in literature as a source of philosophical insight, but that this came... Uh, it seems came after you had started or had completed much of the philosophical work. Can you say a little bit um, about uh, discovering this novel that had this yeah. philosophical content to it?
0: Well, so, I mean, as you said, I, I turned to Pride and Prejudice, uh, which is a novel I'd read a couple times and, and enjoyed. And um, looking for examples of conversations, because one of the features of the social picture of reasoning as it's laid out in this book is that reasoning – of the sort I'm trying to describe is a form of conversation. And so I, I thought, you know, instead of coming up with these hackneyed, uh, uh, trite conversations that I might come up with off the top of my head, the way we generate uh, philosophical examples, I'd go, you know, pepper the book with some uh, better written examples. So I thought <laughs> I'll, I'll read some Jane Austen and see if I can find some nice conversations to to, to um, fill in the book. And in the course of just reading through the novel, Looking for such things, I came upon the scene where um, Mr. Collins proposes to Elizabeth, uh, which now sort of makes up this prologue to the book. And what's what it just struck me and would strike anybody who was writing a book on reasoning and looking for conversations in Pride and Prejudice is that. Mr. Collins starts his proposal by saying, before my feelings run away with me, let me first tell you my reasons for proposing. And then he lists a bunch of reasons for proposing. And they're absurd in the sense that none of them are, I love you dearly and, you know, <laughs> we'd be very happy together. Right. On the other hand, they are reasons that are recognizable as reasons, right? He says, um, "My it's important for a man in my position to get married. Uh, my patron says I should get married. By marrying one of uh, you or one of your sisters, I can... Uh, remove this horrible, awkward situation where I'm going to inherit your estate. Um, and so those are all good reasons, right? In, in some contexts, those are the kind of reasons we expect our you know, students to come up with when they write papers and and argue for things. Um, so that was just sort of struck me. And then thinking about it, I realized, well, Elizabeth's response to that is quite interesting because she doesn't just say, look, those are dumb reasons to want to marry someone. Tell me you love me. She first says, well, no, I don't want to marry you. And then he keeps saying, no, 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 no. you're just being, you know, a coquette. You're just being, you're teasing me. You're being an elegant female, as he says. Mm -hmm. She keeps pushing back on the fact that he's not listening to her, that he's not responding to what she's saying. And at one point she explicitly says, do me the courtesy of treating me not as an elegant female, but as a rational creature. And so sort of clicked in my head this thought, okay, this is exactly what I want to say. That is, I want to talk about reasoning as a form of proposing or inviting. And here's this example of a marriage proposal that fails in exactly the way I want to sort of think about, which is it fails because he's not being, he's not actually making an invitation. He's trying to command her to accept his offer. And you can see that in the fact that he doesn't accept the rejection. Right. Because he decides that her rejection just shows that she's irrational. Um, So that that I was like, okay, that would be a nice way to start the book. It gives me a a sort of clever opening to sort of make this point quickly uh, and in a way that I hope would be accessible. And then as I got to think about it, it just became easy to sort of go back to it for examples. And the more and more I thought about it, the more I thought, at least in Pride and Prejudice, Austin really is interested in this idea of reasoning together or a conversation that is mutual and responsive. Um, I don't think that's true in all of our novels. I mean, I think Emma, for instance, uh, the way in which reason, the idea of reasoning gets deployed, seems to be very different. It seems in Emma, it's much more, there's a social order and you're unreasonable if you try and break it and you're reasonable right. and you conform to it. Uh, and a lot of the novel is about Emma learning from Mr. Knightley that she has to conform to the social order, right? She can't match people across class and things like that. Uh, But in Pride and Prejudice, that's not what's going on. Pride and Prejudice is much more about learning to be responsive to another. Um, And so nicely with...
1: Right, right. So um, you said something uh, as you were beginning to talk about uh, the relevance for Austin, um, or relevance of Austin, rather, where you claim that... um, the interesting thing about Pride and Prejudice was that it was it had examples of the kinds of conversations you were trying to describe, mm-hmm. um, and so this b- brings me to a second kind of methodological question, um, uh, not just about the, the the use or the employment of the examples from Jane Austen, but um, the project in general. So the, the the subtitle of the book, right, a social picture, yeah, um, and b- you, at the early in the book you describe that why you're employing the language of you know, picturing. Um, and the, uh, the, the famous Wittgensteinian, you know, the picture is holding us captive. Is, is, is a figure that comes up, um, a couple of times in the book. So could you tell us something about the philosophical sort of payoff of thinking about reasoning and thinking maybe more generally about philosophical accounts as a, a kind of picture or a kind of picturing of something? Um, because I'm wondering whether, um, uh the 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 language of 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 sketching a picture is supposed to convey to us the thought that you're trying to describe something or represent something that's there um that has thus far not been properly depicted um or are you drawing a picture in that you're trying to get us to envision something that's not uh present um but is um uh uh, is possible uh, given what is present, um, or uh, maybe a third option is that the language of the of picturing and and the picture is supposed to blur that distinction between proposing something new, or and, on the one hand and on the other hand, trying to get something right or trying to accurately represent. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: right. So I think there, there are two ways in which the language in, the language of picturing uh, appeals to me, and, and uh, I, I mean it to be doing work in the book. So one is, uh, and this is the sort of what I take to be the Wittgensteinian idea of a picture holding us captive, is when we're thinking about some topic or uh, phenomena, um, there may be a bunch of different aspects of it that we uh, put together. And that sort of when we think about it, we think about it through a set of conceptual lenses or frameworks that fit together in a certain way. And one of the things that happens when they fit together is that if we try and change one of them, uh something seems out of place. And so we're sort of constantly sort of snapped back into a way of thinking about that phenomenon by this set of frameworks. And so you think of the set of frameworks as a picture, right? A picture has all the elements that hold together in a certain way. And if you change one of them, things go off, right? So there's a kind of built-in um back; that it pulls you back into thinking the way the whole picture works. Um, and what that means is, in the case of reasoning, is if you take the very el- various elements of what I call a standard picture of reasoning that we'll, we'll get into later, I imagine, um, if you try and change one of them because you find it somehow unsatisfactory or it runs into some problems you're trying to avoid, it's really hard to hold on to that one change because the picture keeps pulling you back. And it's oftentimes when you try and explain it to somebody, they don't buy it because they pull you back with the picture. And so it came to seem to me that to really explore an alternative way of thinking about reasoning, one would need to change the entire picture and come up with a new picture and then show how that picture fit together and held together as a whole so that you didn't keep getting snapped back into this first picture. Um, So that's one work that that the picture language is doing is to try and say, look, these are just very different alternatives at many, many levels. And you have to sort of be willing to leap from one to the other uh, to really see what's going on and to see that this, this new picture holds together. Um, The other thing that I think picturing is doing is, as you said, sketching a possibility. So I think of the work of the book um, in some sense as a work of reasoning in this social sense, which means that um, it's an invitation and it's an invitation to see a possibility, right? So it's an invitation to engage in a kind of activity. I say, look, there's this thing we might do together, which I'm calling reasoning, and it has these various features we'll talk about. Um, And it seems to me that it offers all kinds of great, interesting, exciting, valuable possibilities of uh, living together. Um, And I hope you'll join me in doing that. And this is what it would be to do it. This is what we have to do to do that. Do we do it now? Sometimes, not very often. Um, We often get held back by this other picture. Um, I don't see anything about doing it that would, you know, uh, which would be impossible for us to do, given, you know, basic psychological facts about human beings and human societies. Um, But it's aspirational, right? It's not something that it's not merely a sort of sociological description of this is how people interact now. It's it's idealized in various ways. Um, And the thought is its normativity comes from its attractiveness. So if you find it attractive as well or some variant of it attractive, then you'll be moved to shift your habits in various ways to engage in this activity as opposed to other activities. So picturing is doing that kind of work of setting up this kind of ideal vision that you might then uh, join me in trying to realize.
1: And one more uh, um, uh, question along these lines and, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to actually the, 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 the nitty gritty of, 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 the account. Um, so would it be, um, would you regard it to be a, a, a move Um, from – or an attempt to pull you back into the standard picture if I were then to say, well, if you want me to adopt a new perspective on something, you had better give me reasons to do that. But if what you're offering is a new perspective or a whole new picture of reasoning itself, then um, as you say, I can only find it attractive or not attractive but finding something attractive is not a reason to adopt it philosophically, right? Is that a, Would that be an illicit move of the kind that um, this picturing model is supposed to, or the, picture, the image of the picture is supposed to block for us?
0: Well, that's, so that's, I mean, one of the tricky things about the book is trying to have it um, enact this picture it's also describing. Um, and so I do think that there is a form of invitation that goes by making something attractive that... Um, offers you reasons to adopt it, to to Mm -hmm. accept the invitation, Um, and that what you're doing in accepting it is regarding it as giving you reasons to accept it. Um, That sounds a bit circular, and it certainly does from the the standard picture. And so part of what has to happen for that to be a reasonable kind of move to make as a philosophical move uh, is the shift from the standard picture to the social picture. But on, on the social picture, there is this idea that I could merely invite you to uh, see the world as I see it by describing it in a certain way that makes it... I mean, attractive is a, is perhaps not the best word because it's not just that it's pretty, right? It's that right. you see in it things that you recognize, you see in it that it has a kind of normative attraction to you. You see value there that maybe you didn't see before or you see that it captures the value that you think is there already. Um, so it's, it's a picture that upon... You know, seeing you go, yes, that's a really helpful way of thinking about the world for me. Um, And I actually think, I mean, the more I've thought about this and thought about trying to do philosophy this way, there's a sense in which that's really all philosophy ever does, right? I mean, we like to think that our arguments are coercive, and if we have good reason for what we do, you know, then other people will just sort of bow to the force of the better argument. But of course, they don't do that. Right. Right? I mean, they have to find the argument attractive. They have to find the argument compelling which roughly means that they see value in it and see what it's saying um, right, it, that's the kind of authority we have as, as uh, philosophers and so this is as it were uh, just owning up to that fact
1: right excellent um, so let me now ask about the, the actual sort of uh, nuts and bolts um, so uh, even as we've just been talking about it the 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 sort of core of the of the book um, uh, is revolving around um, this contrast, we might say, because mm-hmm. um, it's not clear whether it's actually a disagreement, right? Uh, it's a contrast between two different ways of seeing uh, or two, two different ways of envisioning um, a, uh, the possibilities within human practices, right? Let's put it that way if that might be helpful. Um, and so it's the, the standard picture of reasoning uh, and then your alternate picture, uh, the social picture. Um, and um, could you? Uh, I know the whole book is devoted to this project of drawing this contrast and making uh, one look. Uh, uh, new and interesting, and 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 worth taking up, and the other one, uh, making that one look a little bit uh, limited, and and maybe uh, something that it's worth uh, looking for alternates to. So, um, in the most general terms, then, um, could you give us the contrast? What what the st- what is the standard picture of reasoning?
0: Right. Okay. So let me say something a little bit about what kind of contrast I'm trying to draw, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll draw the contrast. Excellent. Um, so. The more I thought about it, the more I thought I don't want to I don't think these are alternatives in the sense that you have to sort of opt for one or opt for the other. It's rather that they're trying to picture or describe or account for um, different activities. I mean, they're related activities and they have something to do with each other. But I think they're they're sort of thinking about different kinds of things and both of which we ordinarily call reasoning. And one of the reasons why I think it's helpful to have this social alternative picture in place is because if we try and describe the activity that it's trying to describe with the tools of the standard picture, I think we don't describe it well. I think we end up distorting what's interesting and, and fundamental about this social activity. So I don't want to say, you know, we have to, tr- if you like the social picture, you have to drop the standard picture. It's just that you have to see that. This- Hello? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Mike. And, um, the standard picture, um, you don't have to drop the standard picture. It's just that you shouldn't use it to describe this particular interactive responsive activity that uh, we also do when we call reasoning and that we can see more possibilities and uh, details of that picture with the tools of this other picture. So what's, so having said, that's the kind of contrast I want to draw. What's the difference between these two pictures? Well, one way to start to think about it is that on a standard picture, Reasoning is the activity of roughly, you know, getting your mind to be guided by reasons, right? Either rational principles or um, the faculty of reason. There, there are a variety of ways to think about this. But one way to think it is that we start from the idea of a reason or reason, you know, capital R. Uh, and then we work from there to the idea of reasoning as this activity that's sort of guided by those principles. On the social picture, we start with the idea of reasoning. So I want to say, look, there's this activity we do that that we call reasoning. And what a reason is, is something that it gets invoked in the course of that activity. And so we need to be able to describe that activity as it were on its own terms, not just as the deployment of reasons. So we figure out what reasons are by figuring out what reasoning is. So what's reasoning? One way to think about it, to, to begin to think about it, is to see That if I'm engaging with you or interacting with you, there are a variety of ways we could do that, right? I could be commanding you. I could be manipulating you. I could be deferring to you. um, I could be ignoring you. And if I'm doing any of those things, I'm not reasoning with you. So there's this activity we do together, which we call in ordinary language reasoning together. Um, That's sort of situated between, you know, commanding on the one side, obeying on the other, manipulating, ignoring and so forth. Um, So... The first fundamental fact about social picture is that I'm trying to describe an activity. The next thing about it is that that activity is social. That is, in its sort of paradigmatic and fundamental case, when I'm reasoning in the sense I'm reasoning with someone, and we're reasoning together. It's a, it's a form of interaction. Um, which doesn't mean that I can't be engaging in this alone, but I, if I'm engaging in it alone, I'm um, as if we're doing it, with somebody else in mind um, as it were making public something public as opposed to isolating myself. Right. The second feature of it is that it's ongoing. And this is a, I think marks a big difference between the way we think about reasoning on the standard picture. So if you think about reasoning again on the standard picture where I'm, I'm, I'm tracking some rational principles, I'm doing it as it were for an end. I'm trying to figure something out or make a decision or reach a conclusion or decide what to believe. And, I engage in this process of of reasoning as the standard picture imagines it, and I come to a conclusion, and then I stop reasoning, right? I made a decision. I don't need to reason about it anymore. I I know what I believe. I don't have to reason about it anymore. I can go back to it and think about it, and maybe I get new evidence, and I have to change my mind, but reasoning is sort of episodic. It it comes to an end. On the social picture, this activity we engage in of, of interacting with one another um, is something we're sort of doing all the time, or at least it's always in the background of our lives. So it's just it's the way we live together, right? Is being right. responsive to one another, listening to one another, uh, and otherwise sort of interacting in this way. So reasoning is an ongoing activity; it never ends on the on the social picture. It's just something that's always going on. Um, so what is this ongoing activity that we engage in that makes it reasoning as opposed to something else? Well, I suggest that. Uh, it's a form of inviting. So when I'm reasoning with you, I'm essentially issuing you proposals or invitations. And this is another way in which the the picture of the activity I'm trying to get into view is different from the activity that we think about on a standard picture of reasoning. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, I'm not trying to compel you to something by getting you to see the force of the reasons I have. I'm making an offer. Um, I'm proposing, I'm inviting, and so forth. What am I inviting you to do? Well, I'm inviting you to sort of roughly see the world as I see it, or at least this bit of the world as I see it. And so the way I think of that is that I'm inviting you to take uh, my words as speaking for you as well. So I'm inviting you to join me in a sort of social space together uh, where we can both say the same things or take each other's words as uh, speaking for each of us and thus form a kind of uh, what I call a plural subject or a we. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if I'm engaging with you in this process of uh, make, offering you a way of seeing the world and inviting you to take it as as uh, what you see as well, then um, I'm reasoning with you. One feature of that is that reasoning is then part of what it is to be reasoning with you. And this is in some sense a place where the two pictures coincide is that, To be reasoning with you, I have to always leave my invitations open to criticism. Um, And this goes back to a a famous line of Kant's about uh, reason having no dictatorial authority and needing always to be open to uh, criticism. And so the thought is, when I stop being open to criticism, when I, you know, make me, I make this invitation, but I don't listen to what you say back when you want to refuse it, um, then I'm not reasoning with you anymore. So it's only when I'm open to criticism at all times from all quarters that this activity of responsibly interacting with you counts as reasoning. Um, So those are the sort of elements of these two uh, pictures. And then I try and say, if you think about this activity that I'm describing as uh, the activities, the social picture uh, depicts, then um, one of the interesting features about it, well, I guess there's two two interesting features about it. One is that reasoning is a form of conversation. So if you want to sort of embed reasoning in a wider activity, that activity is conversation, which is also a kind of ongoing uh, interactive responsive uh, way of of being together. Um, The second thing is that because reasoning is ongoing, it doesn't have an end. And so you can't characterize forms of reasoning by the ends they're pursuing. Rather, you have to think about different forms of reasoning by the way in which the norms that govern them make them that activity. Uh, And here I think one useful model for just thinking about how norms define an activity is games, right? So what it is to play a game is to follow a set of rules, right? Or to be guided by a set of rules. And if we are doing something that looks like playing that game, but not following those rules, we aren't doing that activity. And reasoning is like that. It's a norm governed activity. Um, And part of what the book tries to do is elucidate or pull out uh, what those norms are.
1: Okay well th- th- that's very helpful. Um so let me follow up with this um because one of the um other sort of contrasts where you, you 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 laid out the, the the sort of two conceptions of of or the two pictures I should say of reasoning nicely um but one of the things that comes along with uh uh this contrast um is uh that the the standard picture and your social picture have different or work with different views about the authority of reason and um, that I take it that once we um, start looking at reasoning as this joint activity that's inherently or intrinsically social, it keeps going. It in, it's, it's not about proof so much. It's about inviting um, uh, or, or offering or proposing. Um, and that it's always responsive and that uh, everyone's open for for uh, for criticism that it looks as if um, the results uh, of of reasoning um, are going to have a, um, a normative claim on us that's that, that will that will be different uh, from what the standard picture says is this right
0: right so one of the places I think where the standard pictures picture hold on us is that we think that you know reasons are normative. That means they have authority, and our standard models of authority is you know the right to rule you know, from political philosophy. Um, it's the right to command, and you know if you think about that, and, and you think about what it is to try and imagine this activity of reasoning that's in contrast to commanding, it looks like we got a problem because if reasoning as a social activity is to be contrasted with commanding, then whatever normative forces generated by reasoning together uh, on the social model can't be command authority because then you're back. I mean, then this distinctiveness about reasoning as opposed to commanding uh, seems to disappear. On the other hand, if you give up all authority, then reasoning doesn't look like it has any kind of normative interest at all. And so one needs to sort of think differently about how authority might work. And this pushed me to sort of suggest that there's a a broader array of ways to think about authority than just the right to rule. Um, and so I, I do this by trying to develop a con- contrast between what I call the authority of command, which is roughly the right to rule and what I call the authority of connection. Um, and one thing about the authority of connection is it's the authority to call for a response. Um, and it's generated by forging a connection with someone. It has some really interesting features about it. Um, Before I get to this, maybe it's worth just giving an example of that so that um, it's clear that there's something here that deserves the name of authority. Uh, Think about a case of two people trying to decide what to do, and one of them makes a suggestion to the other. You know, let's go for a walk this afternoon. Let's clean up the apartment. It's a mess. Um, That's, you know, you can say that as a command, right? Uh, you know when you tell your toddler we 're going out for a walk it's not a you're not opening a, a negotiation or a deliberation you're just making a command, but you could also make it as a suggestion right and what you do when you make a suggestion you haven't closed the matter you ha- nothing has been decided yet, and yet something has changed right you haven't uh um, right. the person can't just walk later. Uh, And you need a certain kind of uh, basis to make the suggestion, right? Somebody can't just walk up to me on the street and say, hey, let's go for a walk together or let's clean up my apartment. It's a
1: mess.
0: (laughs) So you need a certain kind of standing or what I call a credential um, to to make a suggestion or issue an invitation. And in in inviting someone, you change a kind of normative environment, right? What what they do in response to it now has a different meaning. Um, And so it has these kind of features that, commanding does, that is you need to have a certain credential and in commanding you change somebody's normal environment. But what you change is slightly different. What you do is you call for a response. Um, so if you think about that as a form of, command, of authority, one of the really interesting features about it is that it's distributed in a funny way. Um, so I don't have the authority totally to myself. That is, I might have the standing to issue an, you an invitation but I can't make you accept it by, by inviting you. And so whether or not my invitation has been successful, right, so whether or not we share reasons depends on whether you take up my invitation and accept it. Um, so it turns out to be this form of authority that, that's also really helpful in thinking about things like democratic politics, where we want to think about, well, what's the authority we have as citizens if we don't want to think of that as mutual command? Right? It's not that we can each command each other, but that we can generate this authority through talking together. Another feature that's important and becomes important for the social picture of reasoning is that it's what I call forward-looking. So if you think about the right to rule or command, in order to have that authority, something has to be established already, right? I have to have been imbued with the authority to command you in order for my command to be authoritative. Mm -hmm. So we have to look back from the moment when I'm about to command you to see whether I've established that credential. On the authority of connection, because it's distributed... There may—I mean—sometimes it will, something will have happened in the past that they've given me the standing to issue you this invitation. But the very nature of invitations is that they can open up new spaces, and so there's a possibility where I issue an invite, you an invitation, and I'm not standing on very sure ground in doing something. I'm really trying to maybe open up space for us to have a different kind of relationship, and it's then up to you not only to accept or uh, reject my invitation, but it's also open to you. To, in some sense, reject the very thought that I would be inviting you. Um, And so, my standing to call for a response from you is, in some sense, still open to your acceptance or rejection. And so, we have to see what happens going forward to see if I really did have and if you were going to grant me the standing to uh, try to forge this connection. So, at least two ways in which the authority of connection turns out to be really different and interestingly so from the authority of command is that um it's forward looking and it's distributed
1: right and um let me ask uh, i think i know the answer uh this is not a conception of authority i mean this is um uh, um more obviously maybe uh um you, you don't mean in this particular case uh, more emphatically i guess that you you're not denying that there is Uh, the phenomenon of the authority of command, that there are cases in which, um, you know, maybe uh, we're talking about duties to obey the law and things where there are commands and um, people uh, for one reason or another have the duty to, uh, to obey. This is um, an account that's supposed to identify uh, another kind of phenomenon that should also be called authority. Is that right?
0: Right. So it's again, parallel to the reasoning case that, um, just as I want to say, look, there's this other kind of activity we do that I think we should call reasoning, and it has uh, a different kind of structure uh, and norms governing it um, than the one we've been calling reasoning when we do philosophy. I think that these two variants of our idea of authority, um, and they, we need them in different contexts. Um, but it's important to see that there is this other alternative one, this authority of connection, because if we don't have that in our toolbox, then, every time we want to explain an authority relationship, we go around looking for the hierarchy that allows us to command each other
1: right.
0: and that prevents us from seeing certain kinds of deeply reciprocal relationships as also as also normative uh, right. in, in, in an interesting way
1: excellent um, so let me uh, sort of pick up then. Um, so uh reasoning is um, on on the social picture intrinsically social because it is a kind of or it's a subclass of conversation um, and uh, a lot of the examples we've been talking about thus far um, uh, have um, have have been helpful in that they're well especially in the Jane Austen kind of example they are examples of invitations uh, in the sort of ordinary sense um, uh, and in the uh, the examples you the kind of example you were just talking about, you know, should we should we uh, engage in this project? Um, you know, going for a walk or or do this uh, this other kind of thing we might do together, clean up the house. Um, uh, these are uh, helpful examples, but they are also examples that I, I could imagine a, a proponent of the um, standard picture. Um, uh, wanting to to take a step back and saying, well, these are not the right kinds of examples uh, um, because these are not examples in which there are disagreements uh, of the kind that um, I take it that uh, on the standard picture are really the um, the, the the sort of focus uh, of the view, or at least the 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 main reason why we need reasoning. Um, so. Uh, Part of the book and a a, a nice chunk of the book, in fact, is is aimed at trying to talk about these kinds of cases in which it looks as if we need reasoning uh, precisely because um, there's uh, some kind of disagreement or um, conflict uh, afoot. And you call call this uh, specifically engaged reasoning where the invitation that is being issued is – Not simply one to – which I'm asking you to see the world uh, in this new perspective but maybe even to see the world from the point of view or from within a perspective that you are as you are um, presently uh, not inclined uh, uh, to want to see it from. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about um, how the social picture um, uh, uh, depicts uh, these more conflictual kinds of conversations? Right. So
0: uh, let me back up a bit. In the book, there are three kinds of activities I, I discuss that are sort of, I think of it as sort of narrowing or tightening the norms governing the kind of interaction that go on. So the widest level is conversation, sort of casual conversation. And I say, you know, to be conversing with someone, there are still norms you have to follow, and they fall into roughly three categories. They're norms of intelligibility. I, have, I can't just be spouting nonsense to you. I have to Speak to you in a way you can understand. Um, that's for me, uh, uh, with some ideas in Vigenšan and, and Cavell about uh, it's not just that you understand what my words mean, but you understand the point of what I'm saying. Uh, so you understand why I'm saying it, which in, involves understanding a certain. Um, and part of what conversing with each other is make ourselves try to make ourselves intelligible. There's also norms about reciprocity and uh, equality. Here, think conversing and you know professing or lecturing uh, conversing with someone is past re- you have to be responsive to them and whether they're paying attention and giving them space to talk back and so forth um, and finally their norms of sincerity that is you have to sort of stand behind what you say right you can't just say any old thing and then take it back later uh, when it becomes uncomfortable um, that, that sort of structures conversation uh, and in conversations one of the things that happens is we disagree and in fact, conversations are much more interesting when we disagree, right? That's why so much of, you know, there are these stress chronic dialogues where, uh, you know, the interlocutor just keeps going, yes, Socrates, and that part isn't very dramatically interesting. Um, right. So even in conversations, there are ways in which we interact across disagreements. But there, it's perfectly OK for um, not only for us to, you know, agree to disagree, just keep talking and realize we're never going to change our minds, but even that I don't have to make an effort to make my position, one that you would be attracted to. Um, you have to understand it enough to engage with it, right? Otherwise I'm just sort of pontificating, but, uh, I don't have to try and bring you to it and I don't have to make it in some sense publicly available to you. Now it's down to this case of reasoning. where um, you, um, are inviting someone to take your words as speaking for them as well, uh, these norms get, get sort of tightened up a bit. I have to not only say something that's intelligible, say that, uh, that it's intelligible as an invitation, uh, which means, again, making it more publicly available. So it's not just that what I have to say isn't nonsense, but it has to be something that I, in good faith, could take you to possibly accept, right? I anything mean, you won't accept it, right? I can issue an invitation out of politeness issue such an invitation is to say to you, you would be welcome to come here. Here is an okay place to be, right? It's a place a reasonable person could be. Um, And a contrast there is with, uh, I use the case of John Nash, uh, the mathematician and and economist who suffered from schizophrenia. And one way in which he talks at various points in the book, uh, or this biographer talks about him. Uh, you know, suggests so one of the things that goes on with schizophrenic delusions is not that they're not sort of, in some sense, rational. All the parts fit together, and they have ends, and there means to those ends, and so forth. But it's not a not a story of the world that they can share with anybody. Uh-huh. Um, and so, reasoning connects us to people, and failing in this way, not issuing invitations, isolates us from people. But again, we can reason with people we disagree with, and we end that by disagreeing. Here, though. I have to be a little bit more careful about what I say and what I take you to say, because I have to not just, uh, I have to be saying things that I I think you could accept even if I know you won't. Um, Finally, we get to this case of what I call engaged reasoning. And and the suggestion here is that there are all kinds of things that might lead us to what I call engagements. And in engagements, I'm much more concerned that we agree. Um, So I'm willing to, change what I say and be moved by, moved off the position I occupy, um, in order to find common ground with you. Um, so here's some places where that happens. One is I might really care about you. I really care about what you think. And so I don't want you to think badly of me. I don't want you to think I have a position that you think is in various ways wrong or disreputable. And that might move me towards your position. And you, if you feel that way about me might move me um, I might care about the issue, and so I might not. it might not be okay for me that you have this position. I think is wrong, just because it's really important that people get this thing right. Uh, and so a lot of the reasoning we do as philosophers is like that, and so they're concerned not just to say what we think, but to get other people to see it the way we see it. Um, a final place is in deliberations, where we're actually trying to make a decision. Right? If we're going to make a decision, we have to agree on what the decision is. And so again, we're moved by that. Uh, requirement to be more open to moving off of our position by what other people say. Um, so when we reason together across disagreements in this social model, of this act of reasoning uh, and we're engaged, we're doing this thing I call engaged reasoning, then we are open to being moved by what the other person says. And we're both open to being moved by what the other person says. So that doesn't mean I have to give up my position. It may be that my position is unimpeachable and the right one to end up with. But having this in principle, be open to you also having an unimpeachable position, or you being right and I having missed something, um, and all these things that we think of as sort of general virtues of reasoning. Um, but then that allows us to, to come together and talk across disagreement in a way that, and this is, I think, one of the things that uh, the social picture allows us to see clearly a possibility that the standard picture doesn't. Um, if we disagree about something, and yet we s- take each other to be reasonable and reasoning with one another. Um, There's a way in which we can interact that, um, as it were, increases our reasonableness. Whereas on the standard picture, I think one of the things that happens is, if I have a position and I think it's unimpeachable, and you just can't see it, I'm pushed, eventually, and sometimes rather quickly, to the thought that, well, you're just irrational, right? You're just not seeing this clearly, you're not thinking clearly. Um, And one of the things that happens... I think in politics, but uh, elsewhere as well, is when we hit that kind of impasse, the thought is, okay, well, reason didn't work. So what I need to do is bring you to reason by some non-rational means, right? Whether it's force or manipulation or rhetoric or something else, uh, you know, rhetoric of the sort that philosophers don't like, this kind of manipulative speech. Um, Whereas on my picture, if reasoning with you is inviting you, then if we aren't seeing eye to eye inviting you to see things my way far a bit, or maybe move a little bit towards your position so you and see it from there and so if i find that what you're doing isn't quite yet reasoning because you're just sort of stamping your foot and staying where you are the way to bring you to reason is not to sort of force you there not to go but to keep reasoning with you to keep inviting you and so reasoning becomes a way to bring people to reason which uh i think is something we give up on too easily on the standard picture
1: Right so uh just picking up on that then so um one of the uh one of the threads that is um uh followed uh out uh in in the book um uh, sometimes only in the footnotes though um, are the the sort of political implications uh, of the social um, picture of reasoning and um, this is uh, stuff that comes up later in the book Um, and I know that uh, some of your earlier work has been more um, centrally focused on issues about democratic politics and particularly uh, some of the issues that that come out of uh, mainly out of the, the later work of John Rawls about public deliberation and public reasoning and um, a certain image of uh, what democracy is about. Um, could you say something uh, about how you see the, the sort of main political uh, implications uh, of the social view, particularly for um, uh, deliberative models of democracy?
0: Right. So I think one of the ways in which sort of models of democracy have sometimes uh, run around into certain kinds of walls uh, in, in imagining uh, democratic possibilities and what what democratic politics can be is precisely that they thought about deliberation within this, this standard picture. And that meant that deliber- deliberation is much more like negotiation. We each have our positions. And, you know, deliberative Democrats don't say we just pull from our interest group, right? We, we exchange reasons, right? So there's that. They're attempting to get past that that basic uh, interest group model of of uh, democratic politics, but it's still the case that um, if you're s- thinking about deliberation as a form of reasoning on the standard picture, um, you're focused much more on the, the articulation of the grounds of your as the thing that happens in deliberation. Um, and you lose sight of issues of uh, um, responsiveness and receptivity and listening to others that strike me as just as important in uh, imagining what democratic politics might be. Um, So to move further away from this uh, model of, you know, clashing interest groups uh, towards a picture where we're trying to do something together, even if we disagree. Right. So we can have these fundamental disagreements. Um, But we regarding each other as citizens is something like regarding each other as not only people we have to live with together, but people who, from whom we can learn, right? So if I engage in a kind of democratic conversation, one of the things I can, I think, ought to move me, and this is, I think, easier to see if we think of democratic conversation from within the social picture, is, you know, my own citizens have things to teach me. And if they take the positions seriously, I go wrong if I just dismiss them as clearly nutcases because they just, right? And I think a lot of Democrat, democratic politics uh, becomes divisive and, and um, devolves back into something like an interest group tug-of-war because we don't make the kind of effort to listen to uh, what people who disagree with us say. And so we eventually end up just saying, look, I have all the reasons on my side. I've thought about this a lot. I'm really smart. Um, I'm a philosopher. And, and uh, you know, I've defeated all the objections to my view. And so anybody who disagrees with me has got to be irrational or unreasonable or m- motivated by some unseemly uh, practice. And so the kind of democratic view I can get working from this social picture, uh, I like to think of as conversational democracy, just to give it a name, other than deliberative democracy. But um, it's, you know, not a piece with deliberative democracy, but I think pushing further some of the insights that that push people away from interest group democracy to deliberative
1: democracy. Right, Excellent. Um, So uh, then let me ask this sort of um, uh, question that comes up uh, towards the the very end of the book, maybe in the last chapter. Um, And again, just assuming for the moment uh, uh, the position of the proponent of the the standard picture, um, I could imagine someone saying, well, look, uh, Tony, what role – to the more formal aspects of reasoning, uh, as we teach them in our logic courses or even in uh, critical thinking classes, uh, what role what role is there in the social picture for, um, you know, standard kinds of fallacies? Uh, you know, we 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 if we look at actual Human interactions and human conversations, and even conversations where it looks like there's disagreement, and uh, maybe even conversation where there's disagreement and uh, um, a sincere interest uh, on the part of the parties to to hear each other, we can still detect all kinds of failures of reasoning in uh, a formal sense. So, you know, they commit the standard ad populum fallacies, or they affirm consequence, and all kinds of other things. Um, these uh, clearly have to be acknowledged as failures of reasoning, but they look—they um, look like the sorts of things that are, are 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 not so easy to to read off of actual conversations. But um, that their authority, we might even say, looks to us a little bit more like the authority of command rather than the authority of connection. What role uh, uh, in your picture do uh, these more formal aspects play?
0: Right. So I think there are sort of two answers to that question. You can think contest well since I'm not trying to replace the standard picture with the social picture there's plenty of room for uh, you know the standard stuff about critical thinking and logic and the rules of reason of that we find on the standard picture in ordinary human activity right we're trying to figure sometimes trying to figure stuff out and get it right and draw conclusions and figure out what to believe and for that activity that we probably want to be using the activity of reasoning described on the standard picture. Um, so I don't want to say that you shouldn't be doing that. That's an important human activity and, and logic and the rest of it has its role to play there. At the same time, I think there is a role for, and this is the ambitious part of the answer is a role that logic and the principles of logic and the principles of instrumental reasoning and so forth, these sort of very, what seemed to be sort of fundamental central aspects of reasoning, um, uh, understood on um, the standard picture, they, they have a role to play in the social picture. Um, it's a little bit complicated to sort of get at it. The way to think about it is something like this. Um, there are two ways in which I might invoke such a principle in our reasoning together. One is it can be a ground for criticism, right? So I, I hold to the standards of logic. You know, I, look, I took my logic 100 class know about these uh, basic logical fallacies, and, and so when I'm talking to you about something and you commit one of them, one of the ways I criticize you is pointing that out to you. Uh, uh, and, you know, if I'm lucky, you also understand that that's a problem and respond to it uh, by changing what you say. Um, but you might think, well, that's not enough, authority. as you said. If I, if I convincingly point out to you that you've committed a fallacy, you really don't have saying, well, I don't buy into that kind of logic. Um, So what more do they do? Well, I suggest at the end of the book that in some sense the principles of logic, the connection of our actions between means and ends serve to render us intelligible to one another. So as I said earlier, intelligibility, when I was talking about conversation, intelligibility isn't just a matter of my saying words whose meaning you know. It's not even, I think, a matter of my uttering sentences whose meaning you understand, right, that are grammatically correct. But it's that what I say is in various ways connected to what I obviously believe, what the plain evidence before me is, um, that what I do is connected to ends I have, and that I can articulate this if challenged, right? So if I say I'm off doing something and you ask me what I'm doing, I can point to the end I'm aiming at by way of making it clear what I'm doing. So... Is it really important to converse with one another that we're intelligible to one another? One of the ways that we render each other intelligible is by tracking these uh, structural uh, principles, whether of instrumental reasoning or of logic or uh, other forms of principles of reasoning. And where exactly those lines go, I don't have a good answer to yet um, and maybe never will. Uh, But it seems that certainly the core stuff goes there and one might want to build out and think about what happens the penumbra of, uh, of that stuff. Um, so that means that it's not just that if you say to me, so if I say you make a fallacious argument as we're reasoning together and I point out to you, look, that's a fallacy. This is the fallacy you commit. Um, if you were now to say to me, well, I don't care about that fallacy, right? I don't care that I contradict myself. There's a sense in which I can't go on conversing with you. And I I will come to realize that we haven't really been conversing all along because youth intelligible to me um, so we we are not in a, in a sufficiently uh, unified social space that we can engage in this activity um, what we do about that that's another question and philosophy may not help us get an answer to it um, but the so the the force the normative force of these core principles of reason on the social picture comes from there being the way we render for each other intelligible and I think one of the interesting things there is that I think that actually nicely how we actually use those principles and when we use those. And they don't actually work when um, they don't help aid intelligibility, right? So if I challenge something you're doing and you cite the end you're pursuing by doing it, that may not have been the thing I was confused about. And so the mere fact that you convert to a means end relationship between what you're doing and what you're aiming at may not answer my challenge because my challenge may not have been I don't understand what you're pursuing. It might have been, I don't understand why you're violating this norm. Um, so the value in actual reasoning of pointing to things like uh, principles of instrumental reasoning, principles of logic, depends on them serving to render each other intelligible to one another. Um, but since we really, really need to be intelligible to do all these things, they have works that nearly um, uh, pointing to some piece of evidence or some belief or some suggestion uh, don't have.
1: Excellent um so one more uh uh question um, uh, you've been very generous so um and this just goes a little bit beyond the book um so uh if if if, if you want to give the short answer or a short answer that's that's totally fine um but i was I was wondering if uh the social picture might not have some uh troubling maybe even um, implications in epistemology. So um, if we uh, think some version of the thought that um, I ought to believe on the basis of good reasons or the best reasons that I uh, have before me or reasons that are sufficient and that I I fail somehow – at my cognitive duty or I fail somehow doing what I ought to do uh, cognitively if um, I don't uh, base my reasons – sorry, base my beliefs on my reasons, uh, whatever basing is. Um, uh, I'm wondering if the social picture doesn't um, give us reason to uh, um, have to revise that sort of epistemic view as well because it looks as if perhaps the social picture – in saying that what reasons there are is a function of what kinds of um, engagements of reasoning uh, I've I've employed or what kinds of uh, conversations of a particular kind I've been engaged in, um, then maybe there looms some worry about uh, a kind of um, instability in my beliefs or a kind of doxastic uh, – uh, unstableness in that, um, it's not going to be clear to me, uh, what reasons I have, uh, at any particular time because there's always another conversation that I could be having about some particular issue. Is this, this is, I, I know, kind of inchoate at the moment, but uh, I'm wondering if, if there's some worry or, or some implication for, uh, epistemology and all of this and particularly about, um, you know, doxastic responsibilities and this sort of thing.
0: Right. So I guess uh, similar things might be said to what I said to your last question. That is, um, there are all sorts of projects we engage in uh, in the course of living our lives, uh, both individually and together, for which the standard picture describes the activity we want to be engaged in. Um, But it would be really strange if that uh, picture completely divided from the activity I want to talk about. Um, That is, if living together, as it were, was something we did in, in a kind of fantasy land that we... Created, we collectively built up as we needed it, Um, and then making decisions and and forming beliefs and whatever was rooted in some idea of reality and and the constraints it puts on our beliefs. Um, Human life wouldn't look like it does now. So clearly, there's some connection between them, and they constrain each other in various ways. Um, I think we've often thought a lot about the way in which the rootedness and reality of our thinking constrains our uh, interaction. Uh, and I, I don't really have anything to say against that. I think that uh, I don't have any problem with that. And I don't have really thought deeply about how that might have to shift, uh, though it might. The, the one way in which I think the social picture might add something to the mix uh, clearly is there is a way in which um, needing to be able to interact with one another may put constraints on the possible Ways we see reality. Um, so again, I think that the, the case of John Nash is, is helpful here, right? So he had, a, you know, these delusions about what was going on in the world and, and what he was being told to do, and um, they sounded to him as much like reasons as his mathematical proofs. So there's this wonderful line in the beginning of uh, A Beautiful Mind, the biography about him which describes a scene in a mental hospital where he's being visited by a Harvard math professor, a mental hospital in Boston. And it was a friend of his. And he says, you know, how could you, a mathematician believe that aliens were sending you secret messages? You know, that's crazy. (laughs) I sort of looks at him calmly and says, well, because those voices came to me from the same place that my mathematical insights did. So I took them seriously. Right. And one kind of reasoning leads you to see those two things as the same. Um, one way in which the social picture of reasoning helps you pull them apart. is not the only way to pull them apart, but it's in fact, I think the way that Nash actually figured out to pull them apart for himself so he could get himself back to sanity is I can share one of them. One of them opens me up to a public, the ability to invite other people in and one doesn't, right? So he couldn't get anybody to interact with him about the aliens. He could get people to interact with him about his mathematical ideas, um, And that's a way in which those two things come apart. And, you know, learning that, as it were, was, I think, one of the ways in which he describes uh, recovering from schizophrenia, knowing which voices to listen to and which voices or insights not to listen to. So there may be these kind of interactions, um, but I don't, you know, that's still, as it were, a project for uh, a later date or for someone else perhaps to take up
1: well excellent um, Tony you've been uh, very generous with your time um, I usually ask uh, uh, people at the end of these interviews what their next project is but uh, being a, this book only came out uh, um, maybe a week or two ago um, uh, not much more than that uh, I don't know if I should ask that but um, is there a new project on the horizon
0: well so as you, you suggested the short-term project is you know catching my breath uh, <laughs> and, um, then I've been Dabbling with issues in education of late, uh, and I, I sort of have a long range thought of a big project about education. One of the things that, that's interested me and this in this and sometimes follows on the, the, the book on reasoning is if being good at this social activity of reasoning requires something like the virtue of reasonableness, um, how is it that we learn that and how is it that we that virtue of reasonableness is cultivated in us? Uh, what sort of institutional structures are in place? that make that more likely or less likely. And in particular, then, uh, you know, if we want to train kids to be reasonable so that they can engage in this activity well, uh, assuming other people also find it an attractive activity to get people to engage in, um, you know, what would you, how would you design a school or think about it schooling such that schooling, one of the things that schooling did along the way of teaching standard reasoning and teaching, you know, a bunch of facts and a bunch of theories also cultivated, uh the various intellectual virtues, including the virtue of uh, reasonableness. Um, And so uh, I've been thinking about that in terms of civic education and and very far on the horizon. I have uh, this big idea of imagining what I think of as a slow school on the sort of model of the slow food movement. Um, A lot of the way in which we think about schooling today is on the fast food model. That is, there's a body of information and we're trying to get as much of it as possible, as efficiently as possible into the heads of students. Uh, and everything about how we organize education is really designed around that idea of what education is. Um, whereas if we think about education as the cultivation of intellectual virtues and in particular reasonableness, then that shifts all the things how you think about testing, how you think about evaluation, how you think about classrooms, and so forth. Um, and so I want to sort of explore that and think about uh, maybe some of the practical implications of how you would design a slow school and what would be the virtues of doing so.
1: That sounds fascinating. Um, keep me posted on that, uh, and um, uh, maybe uh, in the future when you you get to 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 work it up, uh, we can have you back on the program. That would be great. Well, thank you again for uh, for your time and and for uh, all the the great stuff you've been talking about. Um, the book is Reasoning: A Social Picture, published by Oxford University Press, and written by Anthony Layden. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Anthony Simon laden of the University of Illinois at Chicago. We were talking about his new book, Reasoning A Social Picture, which is newly published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.